Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I'm going to start with a story. Not to ruin the ending, but the ending of this story is my parents were freaking amazing. <laughs> it's like my, I don't know. It was one of my teenage birthdays. I'm going to say like 16, 17. I wake up on my birthday. I go upstairs, you know, because my room's in the basement. Basements, by the way. So cool. I, I miss yeah. basements living in California. Yeah. I come up from the basement. My birthday cake is on the table. Soup's cute. <laughs> and on that birthday cake is the double disc cast album of Sunset Boulevard. Oh, my God. Like as a decoration? Like as a decoration. Like it's it's standing up straight, like in the frosting. They, they went to like Hastings Books and bought... <laughs> The double disc, which is, you know, is fat. It's not just your normal CD jewel. Yeah, case. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Oh, no, fat. the double disc with the thing in yeah. the middle that you have to crack open if you're if you're opening the side that has act one and the libretto or the side that just has act two. Absolutely. Thank it's you. It's a it's a very specific that sound. If I could bottle that sound as a memory of that pop of a that double disc cast recording. Ooh, so good. Which, which leads us and to, of course, isn't it weird? That, why did Into the Woods have a double disc thing? Because they only had one disc. You know why? Because the that fat book. Sick. Yeah. Because of all those had words. It to, to slap you. With it's that the fat only book. album I know in history where there are so many words in these songs that in order to print them out, you had to have a book that looked like it was a double cast recording. Right, right. right. But Sondheim tempos are such that it all fit on one disc. Exactly. <laughs> this is so true. Okay, okay, go on. Sorry. Yeah, so it's sitting there in the frosting. I have a summer birthday, and that is the moment when I fell in love with Sunset Boulevard. I think because even though it's moody and evocative and drama-filled, with maybe a touch of camp, I will always think of my birthday cake. I love that. Wait, I do have one question. What was yes, the please. what was the decor on the rest of the cake? Was it just like a white it was, icing? It was literally white cake, happy birthday, Jeffrey, Sunset Boulevard. I love that. <laughs> I really love that. I really love that because they were like, you know what? We have the accent at home. Exactly. Focal point. Yeah, we don't need your Albertsons birthday balloons. We don't need <laughs> we don't need your like tinted icing. We're gonna take white icing and we know what our son needs. Thank you, Glenn Close. If they weren't so capable ridiculous. of actually crafting the staircase into a cake, I mean, can then you, you imagine know what? the woman, the woman working <laughs> at like Harmons, 
who decorates cakes and they bring like John Napier's set design is like <laughs> we're thinking maybe something our poor parents our poor parents just like we're trying to give them what they want but it's so specific Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional... What is it? The cultural and emotional impact. <laughs> Welcome... <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons, but you know what? You can call me Jeff. Today we are talking Sunset Boulevard, and my guest is the only person I know who wears caftans more than Norma Desmond. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ryan O'Connor. Hello! I'm so happy to be here. I feel like it's, even though it's a podcast, I feel it's important that people know that I'm not just a casual caftan wearer. I have so many that the most soundproof place to record a podcast in my home <laughs> is in front of a wall of caftans because it's the most fabric sound. The, and I have my, you can't see it, but my sound barrier on the other side is a giant teal kimono, which I feel Norma would also wear. But that's my thickest piece. It's like my thickest piece of The of kimono has the, has the <laughs> textural strength. It does. That in, in the future, In the future, Beyonce will be lining all of her recording studios with kimonos once, once they get the memo. What's up with the caftans, though? Can you tell me? Well, caftans are what I consider to be the freedom garment. The thing that people often say is that caftans are flattering on everybody. That's not true. Caftans are equally flattering on nobody. Nobody, <laughs> nobody looks good in a caftan, but everybody looks fabulous. Oh my gosh, put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> It's happening. I'm pretty sure that we just found we have a tea public store, and I'm pretty sure that is what's going on. One of the oh my t-shirts. god, amazing! Great, I'm, I'll be the first to buy it. Um, I started wearing them. I was never like a drag queen type, but as a kid, I always gravitated towards my mom's like big flowy skirts that I would always put uh-huh. on, and then also like cover myself in sheets and stuff. There's something about like being covered in lots of fabric, but lightly on your body, which. I can get really dramatic about it and talk to you about how my favorite saying in the world is wear the world like a loose garment. I mean, I can really go deep and hippy dippy about what caftans mean to me if we're, but like, and I get That's it. I understand, I understand why Norma wore, she actually wears more kimonos than caftans, but there's, okay. She is a caftan aesthetic, for sure. Yeah, um, no, you're right. It's a caftan aesthetic. That's that, You're exactly right. Any garment you can wear that the tag says one size fits most, that's my... That's, that's, Sign me that's, up. That's my aesthetic. That's my... I appreciate any garment that... Because, like, yes, the freedom, the breeze, all of that. And also, if you want to do, like, a dramatic exit, I love a garment where you turn... Yes. And and it doesn't end, right? Like the swinging yes. of the fabric only punctuates. It's almost like the fabric is applauding you as you exit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and reminding the audience to do the same. That's fantastic. Now, I knew you would be a great guest for this, not just because of the caftans, but also because you, you just love old films. You love all the ladies. You love all the leading ladies. And I had a podcast for almost four years called Lady Watch, which is the only podcast dedicated to celebrating women over the age of Celine Dion. Um, 
which was uh, which we did for a long time, and we still we do like two specials a year now because we still have our following. And Lady Watches, Lady Watches, more than a podcast, it's a lifestyle. And um, we have Google alerts on. I think it's I think it's a thousand women now, women over fifty, character actresses, politicians, politicians' who, wives, like who? Can you tell me like who's one of your favorites? That's like no one else's favorite. Like when we when Hello Dolly was running on Broadway, we were of course always excited to hear about who else could be playing Hello Dolly. But once Donna Murphy came in, and she did those Tuesdays, we became yeah. obsessed with Tuesday Dollies, and it was always talking about who are the Tuesday Dollies, and like. Randy Graff, Nancy Opal. Like, these are Tuesday dollies. These are not eight-show dollies that are like, you want... No. Actually, we had said Carolee Carmelo was a Tuesday dolly, and then she ended up being the tour dolly, which it's a fine line between Tuesday dolly and tour dolly. Things <laughs> like that. I mean, we're... We... Look, I would go see Randy Graff dolly over Bette Midler dolly. Same. I went to see Donna Murphy dolly over Bette Midler dolly. I was in town, wow. and I only had time to see one, and I was only going to see Hello Dolly once because I didn't... And I was like, which am I going to see, Donna or Bette? And I was like, you know who I am? I'm the one who goes to see Donna. You're a Donna boy. I get it. And I saw Bernadette. And I and appreciate also, like, you. Bette's dolly, like, I hadn't seen it, but I could see it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, mm-hmm. I knew, I knew what it was, which is not, that's not a dig. That's just a, like. No. Yeah. And then I no, watched it. No, not at all. Later. In fact, if, if anything, it speaks of her iconicism. Absolutely. All that being said, what is your relationship to Sunset Boulevard and or one Norma Desmond? Um, well. If you ask me about, like, what's your favorite film, that's a whole conversation that's difficult for me to have. If you ask me about the greatest films of all time, that's a different... I can be a little bit more categorical, and I can tell you that the Mm -hmm. greatest film of all time is all about Eve, and the second greatest film of all time... (laughs) I know what you're going to say. The second greatest film of all time is Sunset Boulevard. Ah! And it blows I, my mind that these films were in the same Oscar season the same and they year. both have my two favorite scripts in all of film history. Uh-huh. Blows are, my mind. They were both shot at the same time. They are they are both um crafts craftsmen. They're craft crafted. They're crafted. They're craftsmen. They have that like that <laughs> yeah. California craftsman yes, look. They're like a California craftsman home. They are built consciously and perfectly one plank of wood at a time <laughs> they are Amen. these are not these are not accidentally great films these are films that started with a great screenplay with great directors with great actors and they and they at every turn made the choice to make great art which is amazing because i also think that great art often comes from the miraculous of event like some things come together and they're like yeah that was supposed to be a total disaster and it came together and was great. That is not the story of Sunset Boulevard or All About Eve. Those were crafted to be fantastic films and they were successfully fantastic films. And that's because everyone involved Which is just as was miraculous. the top of their game. Absolutely. And that is amazing because that's what everyone creating art should always be shooting for. Not for, well, we'll just pull it together and it'll be what it'll be. Yes, of course it will. That's the magic. Mm-hmm. But it'll be what it'll be when you're shooting for the moon is going to be better than it'll be what it'll be if you're shooting for, I don't know, what's under the moon? The um, Russia. I don't, I don't know why that came to mind. <laughs> then if you're shooting for Russia. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Nailed it. Perfect. And that, see, that's how chess was born. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another episode, y'all. Um, it's interesting, you know, talking more about all about even and Sunset Boulevard, 
in many ways, All About Eve is the Sunset Boulevard of Broadway. Yeah. And Sunset Boulevard is the All About Eve of Hollywood, right? They're both commentaries on the culture and lifestyle of what it means to be in the performing arts for a living, along with the consequences of fame. Yeah. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, however, I think we see more as a drama nowadays, and we see All All About Eve as a comedy. But but when these two movies came out, which I think was 1949 and 1950, Mm -hmm. Sunset Boulevard was a comedy. Oh, absolutely. It walked this really fine line of taking down its own industry. Yeah, commenting on the craziness of Hollywood. And, you know, Hollywood tends to be so uh, self-obsessed that everybody was game. So (laughs) you watch the old film of Sunset Boulevard and you have Cecil B. DeMille making Mm -hmm. cameos. And, And all of these little touches of reality warps the fantasy so that you don't... It's so meta. You don't know... If what you're watching is true or not true or real life or fantasy, it's all just kind of its own thing. And it's a masterpiece. When I first saw, I probably first saw both of these films either like actually sat down and saw them or saw them in the back. I have a mother who is the type to be watching films like this. So um, I probably saw them peripherally before I ever like watched them. Um, Mm. But I think like, okay, me, say I'm nine years old and it's like late 80s. I'm nine years old and I see Sunset Boulevard. I see All About Eve. And to me, I don't have the historical knowledge yet. And so I think everything that I see is a period piece. And to realize as you get older, these are not period pieces. These are these both of these films take place in 1949. And then you're like, oh, my God, in 1949, look at 1949 commenting on 1928. That creates a level of sophistication that you have to get through that's like, I don't know, it's like this idea that we're, that we are a better society than we were before. And therefore we can comment on that old society by saying, look how far we've come. And then once that exists within moments, that thing itself is outdated. Okay. So the musical Sunset Boulevard, as we've been discussing, is based on the Academy Award winning film by Billy Wilder from uh, 1950. Is that right? It was released in 1950, yeah. And uh, it concerns Norma Desmond, who used to be big. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She was a star of the silent film era. Then, of course, once talkies happened and she started growing older, she became what? Irrelevant, which I think is probably the worst thing you can be in Hollywood. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So then she holes up in her mansion on Sunset Boulevard, and the plot is about what happens because of that. Now, I can be somewhat of a critic when it comes to turning films into stage musicals, mm-hmm. especially ones concerning the world of cinema. It's like, why on earth would you bring something that is so obviously about film to the stage, mm-hmm. which is a completely different art form? However, I actually think that Sunset Boulevard is a perfect vehicle for a musical because we're talking about incredibly uh, vibrant characters that have really high stakes. It it almost operates like an opera, a gothic opera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as a film. So to make a musical out of it, I think is is actually a really great idea. Yeah, the film has this incredibly dynamic score. And for its time, one of the most, like, present scores of a lot of films. Mm. 
And I do feel like Andrew Lloyd Webber crafted something very that echoes it that you almost you're you're watching the show and you're almost like, is that is he using the score? It fits so well. And then by adding in the all of the operetta stuff, like it being sung most almost entirely sung through in a lot of places, you kind of go, oh, it's unapologetically musical. It's the difference between you know, Sunset Boulevard as an adaptation of Sunset Boulevard and then Applause, an adaptation of All About Eve, which mm. has some great numbers, is great in theory, but doesn't quite work. It feels like um like a mockingness almost, as opposed to a genuine, like, you know, and Sunset Boulevard is to a fault, um, genuine. Reverent. Genuine, reverent, yes. 100% reverent. Um, that's the word. Yeah. And you're right. I both appreciate it. And it's almost like they may have taken it too seriously, at least at the beginning stages in the first London production. Uh, yeah. And, it, you know, that's that thing, too, of you wonder if Andrew Lloyd Webber, he's not, it's weird because Andrew Lloyd Webber has created some of the campiest musicals of all time. Hello, cats. I, you're so right. I didn't even think about this. And yet, I don't ever get the impression that Andrew Lloyd Webber has any desire to make camp. No. That's what's no, sort of like. No, you're so right. And yet, he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll have Joseph's brother sing a country western song. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I do think that that's where, when you get into Sunset Boulevard, the idea of an aging actress emerging from a staircase written through the scope of a straight British musical theater composer in at the end of the white guy at the end of the 80s you know in in a time of great opulence in his own career and life it's like where's the camp going to like latch onto like a barnacle at the bottom of a ship because you can't create camp and yet everything is there and yet oddly my biggest complaint about Sunset Boulevard in the end is that it almost isn't campy enough. And this is not this is this is being nitpicky about a musical that I really do love. I really do think it's yeah, really I love wonderful. it too. I love this musical and I every time I see it I'm a little bored. Yeah, it's sort of it just every time I consume it again in whatever form if I listen to it or I watch it or whatever, each time I notice another missed opportunity. Yeah, I get, I get that. Now, after Hal Prince and Andrew Lloyd Webber worked on Evita in the late 70s, Hal Prince wanted to work on something else. And so he pitched Andrew Lloyd Webber the idea of turning Sunset Boulevard into a musical. And the direction that he wanted to go in was to take it out of the silent film into the talkie era and instead redo it so that it was more about a Doris Day type mm-hmm. actor. Doris Day, you know, America's sweetheart, huge, huge film star. And then at some point she just decided she wanted nothing more to do with it and really just kind of kept to herself and her animals. The project gets shelved really until after Phantom of the Opera when Andrew Lloyd Webber remembers this pitch that Hal Prince had given him and he goes forward with the project. But instead of partnering with Hal, he partners with Trevor Nunn, who, of course, had done Les Mis and Cats. And he gets to write the lyrics, Don Black, who had done Song and Dance. He did, you know, the lyrics for Unexpected Song, which is a very famous Android Webber song. And they also get Christopher Hampton to co-write the lyrics and book. Uh, Christopher Hampton, known probably best for the play and film Le Liaison Dangereux. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, yeah, that for those right. who grew up in the 90s, 
you know it as cruel intentions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, and it is worth noting, like, I don't always try to be this this guy because it's not helpful, but it is worth noting that that everyone you just mentioned on this creative team is a straight white man. And oh, for sure. Also a straight white British man, everyone in that. Yeah. Oh, is Trevor Nunn straight? I think he is. I'm pretty sure. I, that doesn't matter. But I the, don't know. The, I don't know his life. Yeah, exactly. But the point is <laughs> that you do have a recipe for, you know, a bunch of heterosexual commentary on something that is at this point in 1989 embraced. Norma Desmond is embraced as a gay icon. So, oh, you know, you're so true. You're so right. And it, you feel it when you when you're consuming this version of Sunset Boulevard that does not feel crafted with a gay eye. That's, I'm not saying that it's a good thing or a it's bad thing, except that I do think it explains a lot of what I feel is missing. And mm-hmm. the first big thing that you have to unpack when unpacking Sunset Boulevard is, of course, the Patti Lapone, Glenn Close, Sunset Boulevards. Like, yeah. you have these two things that came up at the same time. And with all the drama around it, basically two women are creating um, their own version of the Roles same role at the same time. So it comes down to like, was there a conversation happening with that creative team that was like, we all know we can't create camp. We need to just do what we're doing. Did they try to create camp by casting Patty and then go back on it because it they, you know, felt it blew up on their face and that's why they went with Glenn? I think, I mean, this is just an opinion based on what I've read because I, I at this point I've gone through both Andrew Lloyd Webber's autobiography as well as Patty Lapone's, which I oh. know you love that book. Patty Lapone's The Bible. <laughs> obsessed. I'm obsessed with that book. Have you listened to it? Have you listened to her read the audiobook? The audiobook, which is the greatest performance ever given of all time. I think it the might au- be her best performance. It is. Date. I own three copies of the actual book. I own three physical copies. And then I send the audiobook to basically anyone who I come and count, I come in touch with who hasn't um because there was a time when the audiobook didn't exist. The audiobook came later. She did the okay. the book came out first. So I read the hard copy first. But the audiobook, she gives I mean it's a performance of a lifetime. She doesn't read that audiobook. She performs that audiobook. And the the Sunset Boulevard chapter um the two Oh, right. Sunset says, Boulevard part one and part that's two. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> part one and part two are, that's the 11 o'clock number of that book is that, is all of that. Absolutely. So you go through Patty's book and you get all of that. And then I heard that Andrew Lloyd Webber's book was coming out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see what his version of this whole story is. Yeah. And his stops at Phantom. So you don't it's, even get the, the whole Sunset Boulevard thing. And I mean, not to call mean. him out, but I'm calling him out here. It goes right along with everything that she complained about, which is that nobody throughout all of the drama surrounding the casting of Sunset Boulevard was willing to take responsibility for what happened. Nobody was accountable. The director wasn't. The designers weren't. The producers were blaming other producers. Nobody was willing to take responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into it, though. Let's talk about this. So Andrew Lloyd Webber finishes writing the show. Whenever he finishes writing a show, he premieres it at his Sidmonton Festival because oh, right. he has this like whole Downton Abbey type, I, I don't know, commune <laughs> that he lives it's on. A, yeah. And there's an old chapel on the property that he has renovated into a theater. And so every year he has this music festival. And one year after Sunset Boulevard 
had been written, he decided to do like a reading of the show and debut it at the Sidmonton Festival. He handpicks Patti Lapone, who had, of course, starred as Ava Perone in Evita, to come to London and read the role of Norma. She didn't have to be off book, but she was like it was a full performance. And at the end of it, everybody's, you know, raving about it. Everyone's raving about her. He goes up to her and says, name your price. You're Norma. And she's thrilled. So, like, this is going to be an iconic thing for her. And her people immediately go into negotiations with Really Useful, which is his production company, to get all of the contractual stuff underway. The minute that they start going into these negotiations, stories from the press keep popping up about how Meryl Streep is pissed that Patti Lapone is playing the role of Norma Desmond. But wait, wasn't Meryl Streep at the reading? She was at the reading, and according to Patty, they had a wonderful conversation afterward. <laughs> right, right. And Meryl like, gave well, her Patty, the thumbs up. <laughs> Patty it's loves one of Patty's to, favorite Patty, things to talk about in the book. She loves <laughs> to talk about how she's friends with Meryl Streep. She loves how they're neighbors. <laughs> it's one of her favorite things to talk about. Meryl's never mentioned it. But but Patty <laughs> talks about them being great friends all the time. She has she on one of her albums she mentions it. She's she's obsessed really? with with people knowing she's friends with Meryl Streep. It's a very weird name droppy thing she does. And then Meryl Meryl is like Patty who? I love Patty LaBelle, is what Meryl Streep is often quoted saying. <laughs> um so once again, Meryl seems to be totally fine with it, and yet all of these stories keep coming up about this drama and Patty's like, where is this coming from? And then it turns out that she keeps hearing from her people that the negotiations are not going well and that really useful group is saying things like, well, you know, she can be replaced. So they start like putting it together that maybe really useful is putting out these stories to try and strengthen their side of the negotiation deals. And she's like, well, that's weird. Uh, it's so. Of weird. course, no one has been accountable for that, but that's kind of what she was what she was getting because no matter who she talked to, she didn't know where all of these rumors were coming from. They finally decide on the on the contract, and very specifically in her contract, it says that she will be debuting the role of Norma Desmond in London, and then will be taking it to Broadway. Right. That's very specifically in her contract. She's getting ready to. She's got it scanned, ready to show you at any time. She keeps it in her purse. She's got the receipts at all times. It's laminated on both sides. It's her phone. It's her iPhone cover now. She just has it as her iPhone cover. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Patty Lapone, please have an iPhone cover that's your that your contract from Sunset Boulevard. So. By the way, like I want to say that what happened to Patty Lapone is atrocious. And she says to this day that it is the worst experience she's ever had in the theater. Yeah. So we're making light of it, but but truly uh, she was she was really taken advantage of. So she packs for London, right? Cuz now they're going into full rehearsals. She sends all of her trunks to London right before she like leaves to to go to the airport. She hears that Barbara Streisand has recorded her two big songs in Sunset Boulevard with one look and as if we never said goodbye. That they're on her new album and which they have cannot been... be cannot be overstated 
anyone listening to this already knows this, I'm sure, but it cannot be overstated how much the entire show is built around these two numbers. Like, right. the entire show, ev- almost every other number echoes at least one of these numbers. These two numbers are the the centerpieces of the entire show. Yeah. Huge. huge. Even though she's meant to debut this role, everyone will have heard Barbara Streisand singing it months before she ever steps on stage. Right. Sung in the voice of a woman who most people find mm-hmm. perfect for this kind yeah. of material. To right. even just say, we think these numbers are so good, Barbara Streisand is recording them. Just that f- statement in mm-hmm. the 90s? Are you kidding me? Yeah. No, no, you're you're exactly right. And I think that Patti LuPone felt like, well, if you want her to be debuting this music, you should have got her to do the show. Right. And I totally get that. Which in hindsight is exactly what should have happened. But that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other story. They go back into negotiations (laughs) and they iron out a few more things before she goes to London. Now she goes to London and she's starting to rehearse the show. From what I understand, they more than anything did not want to create the Carol Burnett show. Right. Right. Because at this point, the character of Norma Desmond had turned into parody of the character of Norma Desmond. And so they were trying to, I think, like we said, take it very serious. In the middle of those rehearsals, it is announced that there will be an L.A. production (laughs) of Sunset Boulevard that will open after London opens. She's like, okay, that's interesting. And then it is announced that Glenn Close will be playing the role of Norma Desmond in Los Angeles. Which is fascinating because she wasn't in the conversation. She was never in the conversation. But when you look back at it, like I said, the writer of the stage version of Sunset Boulevard, Christopher Hampton, who did Les Liaisons (laughs) d'Angerie, the star of that film was Glenn Close. It's the film that won him an Academy Award. She was nominated for an Academy Award. There is already a relationship for this type of writing. And also Glenn Close It seems like a no-brainer. It's also important to state at the beginning of this drama, Glenn Close is notoriously likable. Glenn Close is notoriously easy to work with, lovely, charming, a go-get. People love Glenn Close. Patti LuPone is notoriously different than that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Patti LuPone comes in with a, when you hire Patti LuPone, you know, you know what you get and the cost you get it at. You know that with Mm -hmm. Patti. So, what I imagine is when you say that about, and it's like maybe I'm making uh, up a story, I very possibly am, but you imagine Patty's like mm-hmm. in negotiations, maybe a few tense moments, and you have Christopher Hampton saying, you know who'd be great in this role. Mm. Just saying, and you wouldn't have to deal with any of this. My friend Glenn. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing stronger for an actor than someone on the creative team who wants, who wishes they were working with somebody else. I mean, that's like. Wow. If you're in a day-to-day and your struggle is with an actress and you're like, ah, we could solve this problem by putting this movie star who has Bankable a musical movie theater star, background. Multi-Academy Award nominations. Mm-hmm. And this lights a fire in the early 90s. Now all of a sudden we've gone from Meryl Streep versus Patti LuPone to Glenn Close versus Patti LuPone. And all of the rumors start surfacing about who's going to take it to Broadway. And Patti's like, why are we even discussing this? It's in my contract. I'm the one taking it to Broadway. Right. And yet the rumor mill continues and she can't do anything about it. Uh, they open Sunset Boulevard in London. And I think that this is a good 
opportunity for me to share the three things that I learned about Andrew Lloyd Webber through his autobiography. Number one, he's obsessed with architecture. Number two, Mm. he's obsessed with time signatures. And number three, he's obsessed with bad reviews. Yes. He remembers everything that anyone ever wrote about him and takes it very, very personally. And when Sunset Boulevard opens up in London, it has an okay response. And, you know, it, it definitely has a lot of people lining up around the block to see it. But the reviews for Patty are not kind. Yeah. In fact, what's really unfair is that in some of those reviews, Barbara Streisand is mentioned, and so is Glenn Close. Mm-hmm. So she was, <laughs> her premiere in this role was already being compared to people who hadn't even played the role. Right. And that feels incredibly unfair. And the question then becomes like, how do you avoid that? How, why was everybody so obsessed with this drama of who should play Norma Desmond? Even to this day, Ben Brantley does it sometimes. When pe- when people name check other people's performances in a review, I'm such a show queen that I'm like, why is that not illegal? That should be illegal. Where is the ethics of that? Because what you're doing is you're telling people to compare a live performance, a live human performance, to your imagination. To your imagination. Which is impossible to like the Norma Desmond of my of my imagination flies she's got I mean she's the, the Norma Desmond she hovers. of my she doesn't she climb hovers. the stairs she just ascends yes, exactly exactly <laughs> my imagination of how I'm supposed to feel with Norma Desmond it's not attainable and so you start comparing right. a real performance to something Ugh, it's so gross. It's so it is. gross. It is. It's gross. And I feel so bad for, for Patty, who, in all honesty, keeps her head down and keeps performing. Yeah. Until she's in her dressing room getting ready to go on as Norma Desmond. And she is told that an article has just come out by Liz Smith, who writes what, for the New York Post. Yeah. New York something. Who's, you know, like a, a theater columnist that Glenn Close is going to be taking Sunset Boulevard to Broadway. She did not find out from the producers, from the creative staff, from her agent. She found out because a columnist broke the story. And this is right before she's about to go on for the role that she is contracted to be bringing to Broadway. And according to Miss <laughs> Lapone, she grabs a floor lamp <laughs> and starts swinging and destroys pretty much everything in her dressing room. She's screaming and people are coming in to try and calm her down. She throws open the window and just tosses out the lamp from like the second story window and sends on the understudy. I've heard that story so many times and I think about that story so much. This is the first time it's ever occurred to me to ask did anyone get that floor lamp? <laughs> Where is that? Did some that... some queen must have known history was happening in the West like, End of London? Some, was like, I'm taking this. Some chorus boys like put it in my car. <laughs> Isn't that floor lamp out there somewhere? This is what I'll do the rest of the day: is try to track down that floor lamp. Oh my gosh! Now I know that she didn't go on, and I don't blame her. But don't you kind of wish that she had? Oh, my God. Can you imagine that performance? Then it wouldn't have been boring. Right. Exactly. I talk a lot about my gay time machine and like that's the kind of thing 
that I would get in my gay time machine to go see. And even like her first performance back after all of this, I bet was incredible. Um, Because she does. She goes back. You haven't said, sorry, spoiler alert. But she does. She goes back. Yeah, she, you know, she takes her vacation days, which she is completely able to do for whatever reason. And then her people tell her, look, you've got to finish out your contract because if you don't, if you break your contract, then they won't have to pay you as much money as they need to for breaking your contract. Right. And so, like a trooper, man, she goes back into the show and says that she actually, like, turned up the volume even more so in her performance. And she finishes out her contract, which I can only imagine what that was like. All while everybody's raving about Glenn's performance in Los Angeles and can't wait for her to bring it to New York. Which, let's talk about that for one second, because you and I both do theater in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I've never done theater in London, um, but I do know that the London press to this day is still, you know, they're they're in many ways the hardest theater press to break through. Um, other Thorny, than- to say the least. And the Los Angeles press, love them to death, is slightly easier to impress in the theater. Mm. Um, and just culturally I th- speaking. Just culturally speaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that also there is a very romantic appeal to film star Glenn Close makes good that is very appealing to the PR machine that is Hollywood, which will always mm. trump the New York PR machine. Theater you scene. know what I mean? And the London press had, has never really been that impressed with Patti Lapone. That's because in their eyes, Patti Lapone stole Evita from Elaine Page. So you have... Oh, of course, of you course. Have that, you have that Elaine Page created Eva Perone, and then, oh, like, well, we're going to use this American actress, and Patti mm-hmm. comes in and gets and becomes the world's Evita. So, you know, right. it's you go, ooh, there's some karma there, I guess. Um, although, let's be honest, I love Elaine Page. Elaine Page is not the actress that any of these other no. women we're talking about. Are. I adore no. Elaine Page. Love her, love her, love her. Loved her in Follies. She's amazing. And she vocally, I mean, please, she has an entire Queen album. Yeah. Oh, an album and a Queen album. She's the iconic. She both? Yeah, I love her. But she's not the actress. It also is interesting you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber is kind of notorious about what keys his shows and his songs are being sung in and not changing them, right? Yeah. Every Christine has to do Christine yeah. exactly as it is. And, you know, same with Superstar. You know, it's like, who are we going to get to sing Gethsemane? Yeah. And then Sunset Boulevard comes around and he writes these arias, right, for Norma Desmond. Yes. The Barbara Streisand recorded. That's a, that's a good word. For that them. Patti Lapone sings the crap out of. Yeah. And I went back and looked at her reviews, and everyone said that Patti Lapone is talented, that she sings her face off, but that she isn't Norma Desmond, that she was miscast, that it's not about skill set, it's just about who these people are. And then Glenn comes along and does Norma Desmond, and they fully lower the keys. It's, mm-hmm. I, I've never heard of another Andrew Lloyd Webber-type situation where, where that is the case. Same thing with Evita. Evita is almost impossible to sing, but they certainly haven't ever changed the keys. They just make the, the girl do it until she's hoarse. Yeah, they maybe get a matin- matinee, Ava, if you're lucky. Right. Um, no, 100%. And that being said, I, I like Glenn's interpretation a lot. I think she sounds great. This is the problem. This is the thing that got created by the whole press kerfuffle is we were almost given no choice but to weigh in on this. There's sort of no option other than to sort of go, okay, if you're seeing one, you're thinking about the other. No matter how wonderful your Joe Gillis is, no matter how incredible your Max is, at the end of the day, you're sort of critiquing almost a cabaret performance. 
because mm. the only real meat and potatoes of the show is all on Norma. And it leaves you the opportunity to go, well, I like the way Glenn acts this. I like the way Patty sings this. I wish I could see Barbara perform this. No one can win because there's, by the time you see whatever Norma Desmond you see, which did you, did you see the tour when it first came? I saw the tour with Petula Clark. Same. Me too. I saw and, I have, Clark. and I have very specific opinions. I was like, <laughs> I, I thought yeah. she was like Mrs. Santa Claus. <laughs> like she's very, she's very tiny. And, and when she moves, she kind of just like, she bops up and down a little bit. Yeah. She's a British pop star. She's very like, yeah. that's so true. So that's the one I saw too. Gamage Auditorium, Tempe, Arizona. Sounded and fantastic. Sounded fantastic. But when I watch Petula Clark... I sit in Gamage Auditorium. I'm the queen who knows everything about everything that's happened. So by the time I see Petula Clark, I'm watching Petula Clark through the scope of knowing Glenn's album, knowing Patty's album, knowing the clips I've seen on the Rosie O'Donnell show, knowing that Faye Dunaway came in and did this thing, knowing that Betty Buckley did it in London and Elaine Page eventually did it. And then there's the, the Linda Balgord tour that went out that was too much money. And then there's, the, there's all this stuff. By the time I see it, I'm seeing like a night of a hundred Normas, you know, that come down mm-hmm. that stairs. All of them are wrapped up into this one thing. And there's almost not enough around it to grab onto anything else other than like Petula Clark sings the songs of Norma Desmond. Like that's sort of what you're left with. You are exactly right. This is so true. And I had never considered it. But when you talk about stage adaptations of movies into musicals, you're always comparing musical to movie. Yeah. You're saying like what they got right, what they're missing. With Sunset Boulevard, all we talk about is who's playing Norma. Right. There's nothing else to talk about. Okay. I want to I want to go through the show, but before we do really fast. So Glenn takes it to Broadway. She gets raves. Patty sues really useful for breaking her contract. And I think it's quite a bit of money as she deserves. Andrew Lloyd Webber never talks to her in person about this. He sends her a letter that says something like, I'm sorry that this has gone so ugly. I have a great idea, though. Once Glenn takes the show to Broadway, why don't you take over the L.A. company? And Patty's like, are you serious? The nerve. Are you kidding me? The nerve. The nerve. So she obviously turns it down. So now now they need to find somebody else to take over L.A. And who do they find (laughs) but... Someone who's even more notorious, <laughs> Faye freaking Dunaway. I love the idea of being like, oh, God, this Norma Desmond casting has just been a nightmare. I need <laughs> a break. I just need, we need someone in the L.A. company who's just going to make it. Well, we can focus on New York. Someone will keep the ticket sales up. And someone says, you know who we need? You know who's great? Who's just easy? Faye Dunaway. Literally the most said no one ever. Said no one ever. I'm going to tell you something. Hiring Faye Dunaway has never been a good idea ever. <laughs> even even when it was, it was a bad idea. Even Bonnie and Clyde, it was a bad idea. None of I still feel like I daily pay the price for the life of Faye Dunaway. It's not fair. She says take it very personally. But then again, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because do you remember the, that? Oh, go ahead. Are you going to talk Why about was it the, the press conference? That ever happened to you? Are you going to talk about the press conference she gave on her lawn? I'm sorry, what? 
So when she got fired, so Faye Dunaway, spoiler alert. Okay, so she goes into rehearsals and they promptly fire her because they say she can't sing. She's and she's so like, bad. uh, you hired me with this voice. Right. At this point, the press knows that they get a lot of, they get a lot of traction out of covering Norma Desmond casting. So they, it was like entertainment tonight. It was like major, major news, this Faye Dunaway being fired. So Faye Dunaway, the day after she's fired, holds a press conference in her front yard. This is bonkers. She sits on the lawn (gasps) for the press conference. She sits like she's having a picnic and gives this speech where she says um, many, many, many things. But she said one of the things she says is, I auditioned for Mr. Lloyd Webber in my range. I performed in my range. He knew my range when he hired me. And firing me is, I'm paraphrasing, but you get it. And firing me is one of my favorite quotes of all time, a capricious act by a capricious man. Oh my gosh. It's so good. It's so it's so Norma Desmond. I mean, it's like the finale of Sunset. It's so Norma Desmond. That is what's so crazy about this, though, is that, you know, you talk about the original film being so meta that you can't really tell what's real Hollywood and what's not. This whole experience, like, takes that to a whole other level. Yeah. Patty Lapone got Norma Desmond. While playing Norma Desmond. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I wrote a short play that has never seen the light of day, but it it all takes place the day that Faye Dunaway is fired in a lair underneath the majestic theater where Sarah Brightman lives. You only get admitted to this special lair underneath the majestic, which is where Phantom of the Opera is, if you have played Norma Desmond, Grizabella, Christine, or Ava Perone. And so it's the it's a convention of these women saying, what do we do? We have a we have a problem in our ranks. And it's this Faye Dunaway situation. Look, here's the thing. (laughs) I've never been a huge fan of fringe festivals. However, (laughs) I really want it to come back just so you can produce this. You're right. You're right. Maybe it's a solo show. Maybe that's the way to do it. I don't know. But (laughs) but I do think the like, are you kidding me of it all? No, seriously, it's it's one of the craziest things in theater history, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I was so excited to cover the show, because like talking about it, you actually get like enjoyment out of talking about it. And I know that sounds well, that's the thing, trite right? and horrible, but it's the fact. Speaking of, did you know that Gloria Swanson tried to create a musical of Sunset Boulevard? I've heard she, that, but I've never I don't know any I don't know anything about it. At some point, she had her partner like started writing songs and they created a musical version of Sunset Boulevard. I I can't believe I didn't bring this up that she was going to direct. And she even performed a song of it on like on one of those variety shows. Which one was it? Steve Allen or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and um, and of course, it doesn't go anywhere because Hollywood is allergic to female directors. And (laughs) right. Yeah. But like talk about meta. Norma Desmond is trying to create a musical about Norma Desmond that won't get produced because she's no longer relevant. Okay, I we've been talking so long, but I'm I'm having a great time. The musical opens in 1994 in New York. Sunset Boulevard is one of two, count them, two 
new musicals that season. Oh, that's right. It's crazy. So when the Tony Awards uh, nominations are announced, there are two musicals up for Best New Musical. One is Sunset Boulevard. The other is Smokey Joe's Cafe, which is a review of songs, which means that Sunset Boulevard has no competition for Best Book or Score. How did that happen? Why did that happen? It's crazy. And it really does mark the end of this quote-unquote British wave of musicals. Right. Because... Sunset Boulevard is incredibly expensive. It has this enormous ornate set that is just absolutely gorgeous, but it's too expensive to run. And the year after Sunset Boulevard wins the Tony for Best New Musical in all of its opulence and drama, the next year it's Rent. Right. The end of these huge overblown productions is kind of marked by Sunset Boulevard. And then what survives later is sort of this combination. You could almost argue that a of combination of Sunset Boulevard and Smokey Joe's is what sort of comes in to create the jukebox, which is the only thing that can compete with the contemporary musical. Right. That's a very fair and valid point. So Sunset Boulevard wins all of the Tony Awards that it basically has no competition for and loses to the ones that Showboat takes, the big Hal Prince revival of Showboat was also right. that season and very lauded and adored. But Sunset Boulevard is a quote-unquote hit. It runs for almost three years, but it is one of the biggest financial flops in musical theater history. Right. This show is what coined the term a hit flop. Yeah. Meaning that it ran for three years. Everybody knows it. It, it made a huge cultural footprint and yet lost so much money. Probably <laughs> in many cases because of all of the lawsuits that it received from women they fired. Yeah. I'd like to think that in addition to Patty Lapone's phone case, that's her sunset contract, she has a pool raft that is just a printing of all the sunset grosses and all the losses <laughs> as she just l- lounges in her swimming pool that she calls her Andrew Lloyd Webber Memorial Swimming Pool, I think, or whatever she calls it. She names it after him because she bought it with her sunset money. That's hilarious. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love her. That's fantastic. All right. That's all of the drama. Oh, except that then Glenn Close does the 2017 revival, which is very pared down, very skeletal. It really focuses on the Andrew Lloyd Webber orchestrations, which I think are like no there's not a composer out there in the theater who knows an orchestra better than Andrew Lloyd Webber. The orchestrations for Sunset Boulevard are glorious. So they had like this 40-piece orchestra on stage, and they get Glenn to come and reprise her role. When she agrees to do it, she has a couple of demands, one of which is that they need to use the monkey that they had in the... Oh, the monkey. Like the prop of the monkey? Yeah, like the monkey prop. Which is important. And she had like this real, really deep connection to it. So she wanted it. And the producers are like stressed out trying to find <laughs> the monkey. So like, where, where is this original monkey? And then she hits reply all. There's just one sentence and it's, I have the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. It's like the it's like the gayest ransom note of all time. Oh my god. And so they so used good. her they used her monkey. She apparently had had it. So there you go. There's a fun oh. little quote from the 2017 revival. All right, let's talk through the show. It starts out with a score that really evokes a film noir 
type feeling. Like that orchestra starts playing and I immediately see the world in black and white. Yes, yes, totally. I completely agree. After this, this little overture, it gives way to a prologue and we meet our protagonist, Joe Gillis, who's kind of an anti-hero. He's a screenwriter in Hollywood and he is narrating the story, telling us that a murder has been reported at one of those crazy mansions up on Sunset <laughs> and and that everybody, you know, all of the media is going to be covering this. But if you want the real story, you came to the right spot. So then he takes us back six weeks and we start seeing, you know, what happened leading up to this murder. Way to go, Android Weber, for writing what I think is probably the best song about Hollywood in a musical, which is oh, Let's Have Lunch. I love Let's Have Lunch. Right? It's it's this montage of Joe Gillis walking through one of the big movie studios, talking to everybody, talking to actors, talking to other writers, producers, his agent. And the through line is this, hey, miss you, buddy. Let's have lunch. Yeah. It's a great, <clears throat> great number. And also kind of is the beginning of of the problems with this show, which is that you have two musicals. You have the musical happening at Norma's house, and then you have the musical happening outside of Norma's house, and they don't quite go together. And maybe that's the point, but I think there is a way to make it a little more cohesive. I don't yeah, know. Do I agree. Yeah, I agree. It has that like snappy City of Angels feel. You know, it's that very that sure. very like maybe a little cheesy. By cheese, do you mean like show busy? Show busy, or... like just like bro- very broad. And uh-huh. so you're so when you get into the Norma scenes, the audience doesn't feel necessarily taken care of. They don't know where, what they're supposed to latch on to. Are they supposed to latch on to the camp or are they supposed to ignore the mm-hmm. camp and take it very earnestly? And those songs, the studio stuff, as much as I love them, they don't really set up any clear guideline for the tone isn't cohesive. Mm. Interesting. So while he's there, he talks to his agent. He's trying to get, you know, one of his scripts made into a movie. He goes to Sheldrake, who's this producer, asks him to look at a script that he did called Bases Loaded. Sheldrake calls his secretary, Betty, to pull any copy that she may have written on the script. And she says, "Uh, actually, boss, like, I remember that one. It's just not something that's very good. And he says, oh, well, turn around. That's the writer that you just said that in front of. And and this is the meet cute between these two people. Yeah. Joe, who can't get a movie made, and Betty, who's an aspiring writer and wants to create films of substance and recognizes the talent in Joe and wants him to get back to the reason why he became a writer in the first place. Right. Like that is that is their connection that has started in this moment. She feels bad for calling him out in in such a brash way and tries to make it up to him because two, I don't want to call them bounty hunters, but two two guys who he owes a lot of money shows up to the set. Oh, yeah. He's got like creditor, like some sort of like yeah, debt yeah, like collector guys. Yeah. Debt collector. Thank you. That's the right word. Bounty hunter. <laughs> that was not the right picture. <laughs> although, to they are very, the although they are very aggressive for like they aren't. Yeah. I mean, my debt collectors just call a lot. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. They don't, they don't yeah, but they show up to yeah. his place of business and are like, we know you don't have any money, so we need to take your car. And she helps him escape. This turns into a car chase right. in which he's 
driving down Sunset Boulevard and they're trying to follow him and, and, and track him down. He pulls into one of the mansions there along the boulevard and hides in a, an open garage. And then he gets out of the car just in time for someone to say, you there, why are you so late? And he gets brought into this big mansion and sees Norma Desmond, who is this opulent but somewhat decrepit woman, crying over the dead body of a monkey. Yes. And this is our first moment to meet Norma, is that she has lost her best friend, who happens to be a monkey. And it seems that in this huge house, in this huge Art Deco house, the only things living there are her, her butler, and this monkey who has passed away. And she thinks that Joe Gillis is a is an undertaker, is someone who's going to help her bury the monkey. And this gives way to Norma's first song, which is called Surrender. And I think it's gorgeous. So beautiful. As you get older, you appreciate different things. And this song... Mm-hmm. I definitely was skipping this song when I was a teenager. I was not. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, we had a schmaltz, schmaltz, schmaltz. I now, like, mm-hmm. if a surrender's on and then I catch eyes with my dog, it's over. It is over. We're <laughs> crying for the rest of the day. It's done. It's done. You know, because it paints the picture that she has nothing except for this mm-hmm. grand house, Max, and this monkey. So if you only right. have three things and one dies... That's a huge loss. That's a huge, yeah. huge loss. Ugh, it's haunting. And it really is a beautiful song. It paints Norma in a fragile way. You you can tell she's... I think that that is probably the word I would use to describe her most is fragile. And I think that all of the great screen artists have an element of fragility. And I, that may be an, an unfair generalization. But the fact is, is that if you're going to be acting with a camera that close to you your emotions are almost always on the surface yeah you know it's funny when you say that what i start thinking of is renee zellweger i think of renee zellweger Mm -hmm. in judy which i didn't feel like she was doing a great portrayal of judy garland although what what i was watching her do was very very captivating and very Mm -hmm. vulnerable and very honest and you have that that's that fragility that's that Mm-hmm. That like you're watching someone like give a performance from the from the wreckage of their own their own from their inside out, yeah. regardless of yeah. you know whether it's a powerful performance or a scared performance, if you're working from the inside out, there's something incredibly vulnerable mm-hmm. about that, and that has consequences and right. be praised for it and have fame for it, I think has some serious consequences and and you see that in Norma. And then you see what's happened to her, which has just, you know, she's been forgotten because of the talky pictures. And so that's just escalated this. Mm-hmm. So now Joe is like, hey, uh, I'm so sorry about your friend, but you've got the wrong person, <laughs> which has to be uh, triggering for her. And then he recognizes who she is and says, hey, you used to be Norma Desmond. You used to be big. And she says, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. These lines. It's perfect. They're, perfect they're so perfect. And is such a great line leading into a song, which is her first big moment called With One Look. Her first great aria, song, as you yeah, her first very aria. smartly exactly. called it. And it's so beautiful. With One Look is such a good song. It's mm-hmm. like he made such a choice. 
This could have been, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Clear the decks, clear the tracks. It could have been, everything's coming up roses, you know? Like it could have been, if he did that, everyone would go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, big number. Mm -hmm. This is her big number, her ballads in act two. This is her big, I want song or whatever. Instead, he says, no, let's turn it on its head and be really vulnerable. And I'm going to tell you the secret of what I do as a as an actress. I'm going to tell you how much I believe in myself, no matter what you have to say. I'm going to stand in my vulnerability and tell you what I am best at in the world, which is with one look, I can break your heart. And it's like, oh, that is that that ability to take that choice, that structural choice. I can't applaud him inspired. enough for that. Yeah, it's very inspired. Inspired. She tries to kick him out. Wait, I won't stop you a thousand times, but I do want to say one thing. Yeah, no, no, no. At the end of With One Look, she Uh then, her first line of dialogue after then With One Look is, now go. Now go. Which is a perfect example of where the audience doesn't know where the tone is. I have no confirmation of this, but I there, everything about it seems like something that was built on Patti Lapone. That now go yeah. is a Patti Lapone transition out of a number she knows she nailed it. Now go. I don't think Glenn Close would organically create that moment. I think she fills that moment because she's given it. Oh, that's a that's a moment that feels like camp. That's the there's an argument for that she shifts out of her vulnerability and it's a defense mechanism. Of course, all that stuff is totally valid. Of course, it works, but it's. But it is that tone shift that's like, it's jarring. You've built up this vulnerability for me, for Norma, and now I'm confused again about how I'm supposed to feel about her. I'm confused yeah. about where to put my interest. Do I put my interest in watching yeah. a creature who's weird, or do I put my interest in caring about a human being who's struggling? It's very difficult. What Can it be both, though? Because I, I do I think, think so. that I do. I it think makes so. her unpredictable, and that certainly has a payoff. But still, I see what yeah. you're saying. Yes, I do. Now, when Joe introduced himself and said that he wasn't the funeral guy, he said, you know, he's he's a writer. So Norma realizes that if she keeps him around, she can have him work on this film that she's creating, which will be her big return to the film industry. <laughs> and it is a script about the character Salome. Now, Salome is from the New Testament. She's basically the woman who is responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. Yeah? Yes, because of her dance of the seven veils or whatever, right? Yes, yes, yes. So she's very alluring, very beautiful. And now Norma Desmond thinks that she's the perfect person to play this. (laughs) Joe, being an opportunist, realizes that, you know, the script is probably crap, that it's never going to happen. But he's broke. He has debt collectors who are trying to, uh, you know, take everything from him. So why not? Mm-hmm. 100%. I relate to Joe here. I relate to Joe's <laughs> sort of like non-threatening opportunism here. Like I, I understand mm-hmm. that feeling of like, this woman's going to be this crazy anyway. If she's asking me to stay, I might as well stay. It's it's interesting because it's this turn. She's getting something out of it. I Absolutely. might as well as well. He's an opportunist, but he's not. he's not a bad guy. He's just a... He's mm-hmm. just a little lazy and a little entitled and, you know, an opportunist. That's cool. What I don't think he realizes, though, is that he's going to become a, a slave. Yeah. In many ways. Right. He has to live there and he becomes the new monkey in many ways. Mm-hmm. Her confidant. So the butler, Max, takes him to his room to stay. And Max reveals 
that he is not just a butler. He used to be married to Norma. Yeah. And was her director, was the director of all of her best pictures. Mm -hmm. And now he's kind of been reduced to this butler role because he cares enough about her that he wants to take care of her. Yeah, that that fragility probably that he captured so much on camera makes him want to, to take care of her. Yeah. He writes her fan letters every day and pretends to be other people so that she still thinks she has this fan following. From there, the next thing that we see is Joe's first work session with Betty. Yeah, so this is where I wish I feel like there's a missed opportunity because Max, I think Max and Norma's relationship is so interesting. And mm-hmm. um, and there's so much there about like what he did for her and what she knows he did for her. And yet the agreement is... We're going to play our parts, which is that you're lucky to be here and I, I'm i a star and we, we all live in the orbit of which only one of us can be the center focus. And years and years ago, we chose that it's me. And then there's Betty and Joe, who Joe's self-confidence is completely in the gutter. He's got no money. Nobody wants anything he has to do. So he's pitching these lousy screenplays just to make a buck. And Betty says, you're better than this. I believe in you. You could be so much more... If you would only believe in yourself the way I believe in you. I mean, that's a that's a quartet right that's there. A great, dueling yeah. dueling yeah, duets right, right there. It would be so the mirror would be so wonderful to establish and not to spoon feed it, but like No, no, but it would also it would also create a bridge between these two worlds. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. To show that the same things are happening in these two separate worlds makes it feel like it's a little more synchronistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we don't have that. We yeah. have Betty and Joe. <laughs> We don't have that, though. We have Betty and Joe, and we don't really care about their romance. It feels like a very, very much side plot. She's she's engaged to his good friend. There's it's a very that's true. Which is not that's not that's not on the show's problem. That's a plot from the movie. It's not. um, Yeah, it's just a weird like. I think it makes Joe's character incredibly complicated. Like I said, he becomes kind of an antihero because. he he's mooching off of one woman and possibly stealing the lover of his best friend. Right. Norma continues her craziness every night. She makes him like get dressed up and they go and watch one of her films. Uh, this is another when you were saying like you always skipped surrender. New Ways to Dream is a song that I completely avoided. And now I really love that song as well. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. It's beautiful. And it's a great it's a great musicalization of the film, that moment, I think. Too. Yes, agreed. Okay, so now it's New Year's, and Betty wants Joe to go to this New Year's party with all the kids and all the artists and everything, and Norma wants Joe to stay with her for their New Year's soiree. And Joe's like, I want to go hang out with my friends. You can't keep me here. I'm not your monkey. I'm going. So he leaves. But then when he's at the party with all of his friends, he receives a phone call from Max saying that Norma has slit her wrists. Mm -hmm. It really is, I think, the moment that Joe can't keep ignoring all of the warning signs. When you're around somebody this eccentric, you can kind of play it off as, oh, that's just that Mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. But now she has taken manipulation to a whole new level by trying to kill herself. And now what do you do? What he does is he runs back to her right. and apologizes and ends up making out with her. Yeah. 
that's which is just kind of disgusting. And it's this amazing stage picture where she has her wrists like bound with these bandages and he's kissing her and she's like raising her arms her, with her like spider fingers. It's so creepy and amazing and kind of Nosferatu in a way. It is Nosferatu. I've never gone to those extremes, of course, but I think, oh, how many Joe Gillises have made out with me because they they were afraid of me outnormaying myself. <laughs> how many how many times have I been in that? Uh and really like the those Joe Gillises should have just gone home. They really should have just gone oh home. Oh my <laughs> that's that's amazing. <laughs> That's your Sunset Boulevard chapter in your book. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a very different. It's a whole other musical. All right. Act two begins with Joe singing the title song, uh, Sunset Boulevard, while trying to figure out whether what he's doing is right or good or has a future, which we all know the answer is no. Right. He's also doing it in the tiniest bathing suit you've ever seen in oh, musical Oh, this bathing suit. <laughs> I forgot. He shows up in this... This thirst trap of a bathing suit. Why? It's so... like it's actually a really interesting song with a lot of emotional undercurrents, and you can't pay attention to anything because he's in this tiny bathing suit. Absolutely, which and it's that like late twenties, early thirties leading man tenor body, which is always that like even though everything about it should be sexy, it almost isn't. Always, no matter what. Like, it's just like, but it's distracting. And where's the mic pack? You're right. Distracting is the right word. You, thank you. Because then he takes off the bathing suit. Do you remember that? That he takes no. off. No. I had forgotten this. did he this. take off the bathing suit? I had forgotten this. And to prepare for this, I watched some clips from 2017. And I'd forgotten that in the number, he puts on his robe and then he takes off the bathing suit. So he gives the very, like, the illusion of that he's naked, which, of course, like, he's in some sort of brief with his mic pack, of course, but, like... Yeah, because he didn't... Right, but, like, again, you imagine this straight white male team being like, well, we should probably give the gays something here. Uh, (laughs) We should probably... um, Excuse me, Christopher. I was thinking perhaps... Perhaps Joe could um, just be in a tiny little bathing suit. Uh, Because I don't know if I'm giving the gays everything they want in every scene with Norma. So perhaps they will be happier if I give them just this itty-bitty bathing suit. That's my Andrew Lloyd Webber. Do you think... (laughs) It, that was a great Andrew. <laughs> there is something really interesting to me about him being a kept person, like yeah. a kept boy. Yeah, right? for sure. And he looks like, and he looks all perfect, and he's sitting at a pool, which is, you know, the epitome of living the Hollywood dream. And yet there's this undercurrent of knowing that it's wrong and not feeling content with it. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. I just wish it was maybe done in a different way. Yeah, it just feels a little baity. Great. Now that we've talked about the bathing suit for 20 minutes. The <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Norma receives a phone call from the studio saying that Ces- Cecil B. DeMille wants to see her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's like, this is it. It's They've happening. received my script that we've been working on. This is going to be the big return. And what it actually is, however, is they're doing a movie that needs a car, like a vintage car that she owns. That they saw Max drive on the lot when he dropped off the script. Thank you. Yes, exactly. And so they want to use the car. So she thinks that she's going because they, you know, they've missed her and they're ready to do this project. But that is not the case at all. They go to set, however, and 
the moment of her returning is the moment that she has been dreaming of. And it gives us a huge wish fulfillment because we see her live the glory of that in As If We Never Said Goodbye, which I think is five times the number that Don't Cry For Me Argentina is. Agreed. And that's saying something because Don't Cry For Me Argentina is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. For all these years, I've admired the fact that there's this moment. She sings this number, right? And they and I always mm-hmm. thought the staging was brilliant. Trevor Nunn's staging of letting everyone watch her sing this song. And in my like novice brain, I always thought, oh, that's it's great. They let her talk to them. They applaud her at the end after she she basically just makes a lap mm-hmm. right from the director's chair. Mm-hmm. Then she makes her lap around the stage and then back to the director's chair is like the staging that's always been done. And it wasn't until recently that I realized that what they watch is Norma say nothing, live in that moment in captivated silence, take it all in, probably make eye contact with every single person in the room, bring them in, Mm -hmm. and with one look, she breaks all of their hearts. She does exactly what she promised you she would do in the first act. We experience it through a song that's written in first person, Mm And it leads into that beautiful musical moment right after that with Cecil B. DeMille, which is actually one of my favorite parts of the whole score. When he realized it's almost you see Cecil B. DeMille realize what we all now know, you know, we all say it all the time. And I had a whole podcast about it, about that. We dispose of these women once they hit a certain age. It's almost like this Mm -hmm. is the moment where Cecil goes, oh, God. What do I do? What, what am I going to do? What have we done to you and the and the hundreds of other ones? And what mm-hmm. and what am I going to do about it? And you see, it's too overwhelming, and he just goes back to work with young actresses. Wow. There's always also always a young actress right in that in like a belly dancer costume. The, it's right. just that whole moment is really quite stunning because it's it's yeah. so many things are happening that are musicalized. You got to give them you got to give them all credit for that. For that structure and that creation, it's really, really stunning. And it's Glenn's best, as if we never said goodbye, is Glenn's best Norma moment, I think. For sure. She did that on the Tony Awards. And if you haven't already seen it, go see it because it's probably one of the best Tony Award performances ever. Yeah, it's really good. It's perfection. Okay. Now, after this, everything starts kind of escalating a little bit more. Norma is convinced that Cecil B. DeMille is going to call for her uh, at some other point. And so in the meantime, she's going to get gorgeous and talk to astrologers and make sure and see when the best time would be to be filming. That's one of the best (laughs) featured ensemble tracks of all time. That astrologer and the therapist, (laughs) but the astrologer especially because she has that cape. She does that. What is that line? She's I can't even remember. It's all visual to me. But she sings that line and she's like the eccentric. And you also are like, oh, you're also like the third cover for Norma. So like you're you're like ready to go on at any moment. (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing Uh, we also see the relationship between Betty and Joe click up a few notches oh yeah that's when we have that song they're working on their script and then they sing this song called Too Much in Love to Care which is I think probably one of the most boring songs of the whole score the the most memorable thing to me about Too Much in Love to Care is that I remember in that big old booklet in my double CD (laughs) case I'd be following along with the lyrics because the whole libretto is printed in there And at the end of the song, in the libretto, it said in the stage directions, 
It is obvious that they are about to make love. <gasps> is it? I mean, is it obvious? I guess they just sang the song. I mean, I don't know. I just thought that that was so specific. It's obvious yeah. that they are about to make love. Well, there's a playable. It's there's obvious. a playable stage direction, kids. <laughs> Up for interpretation. Yeah. Betty and Joe are in love, and you know what? They're uh, too much in love to care. <laughs> They're too much in love. Even if Alice Ripley is playing Betty Schrafer, not necessary. Thank you. I mean, we had some pretty impressive Betty Schrafers between Judy Kuhn and, and yeah. Alice Ripley. Yep. My goodness. Judy Kuhn. This all leads to the final scene in which Norma discovers about Betty and feels absolutely betrayed. And it's this it's a huge confrontation in which Betty comes to the mansion and Joe, in order to protect her, basically breaks up with her and says he wants nothing to do with her. He breaks her heart so that she will leave because he's afraid of for her safety. Betty leaves. He has this whole confrontation with Norma. Oh, and where... Norma says when she thanks him, she thanks yeah, him oh. for breaking up with Betty. It's so it's so pathetic. Pitiful. Yeah, it's pathetic and pitiful. Yeah. It's just so she knows he loves this other woman, but he's breaking up with her to be with her, and she thanks, she accepts it. She Ugh. accepts it as like a gift, yeah. as though he just brought her flowers. Oh, it's so upsetting. And he says, you know what? No, I don't choose you. I'm leaving. Right. And he goes to leave, and she grabs a gun and shoots him, and he falls into the pool, which means that the murder that we heard about at the very beginning of the show is actually his own. Dun, dun, dun! Yeah. And I will never forget, it's one of my favorite deaths in all of film history, when William Holden gets shot, because he's walking, he like packs his suitcase, and he's walking out, and Norma Desmond comes out and shoots him, and it hits him, but he like keeps walking. He like gets hit, and then keeps walking, and then he she shoots him again, and then he falls into the yes. pool and just floats there. Oh, it's so good. Oh my god, I wish that the listeners could have just seen how well you just recreated <laughs> William Holden's death. That was such a good William Holden dies in Sunset Boulevard death recreation. That was really... If I can maybe do it in your friend show, I would be yes, really great. Yeah, it'll just be a passing through. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. And so now Norma has killed her new monkey, basically. And <laughs> yeah. so she has, she's completely cracked. I mean, she's not Norma anymore. I think it's no, safe to say she's... she has reached to the the place of complete mental breakdown and the police show up and there are reporters because obviously it's murder involving someone famous. And Hedda Hopper is there at the scene, which I love as if as, as if Hedda, right. as, as if Hedda Hopper was like an at the scene reporter. I love that. part. Oh, that is funny. And she and Norma's just like getting ready and she's like not there anymore. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to get her, you know, out of the house. And Max, who, you know, has been with her all this time, realizes that the only way to do it is to feed into the crazy, mm -hmm. that they need to convince her that it is time to shoot this film for her big return. Mm -hmm. And that by luring her to the cameras or to her public or to her dream, that they can get her to the police station. Yeah. So. Oh, it's devastating. Yeah, he starts painting the picture of the people are ready and she walks out and there are all these reporters and the police officers and she thinks in her, you know, now completely fantasy mind that these are the people on set right. and she is filming a, a movie and she... She's Salome. Yeah, she's Salome. 
and she's walking to her close up, but truly the close up is her is her end. Yeah. It's it's the end of Norma Desmond. And you get the sense in the film and in the show, you get the sense that it really is the end. You get the sense that there's no more Norma. Like yeah. you said, Norma's gone and there's no more there's no more Norma. Despite all of the drama and all the camp, it is a it's a very sad story about a kind of creature that we constantly create in our society, mm-hmm. which is someone that we build up to then watch fall down. Yeah. And I, my, my heart does go out to all the Normas out there or just to any of the artists who struggle with confusing their own self-worth with their artistic value. Mm. And um, it's a really tricky line to toe for sure. It is. I know it is in my life. Yeah, because to do the business of show business requires more and more sacrifice of self in a lot of ways. And it's that balance of taking care, you know, self-care and and being open to that vulnerability. And, and you know, I've seen many people who I get jealous of their success. And many times you go, at what cost? Two things. That person might be willing to pay a price that I'm not willing to pay that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And also something in the universe, whether you, you know, whatever your faith is or your, what you believe in, in a higher power is somebody, something saying, you don't want this. The thing, the thing that you mm-hmm. think you're going to get from this, you're actually going to get from not having this and that, you mm-hmm. know, rejection is God's protection and that you look at Norma has so much. She has clearly, she has enough wealth to sustain herself. You sort of go, if only Max had spent all that time writing those fan letters at maybe like helping both of them work on acceptance and and you know yeah. the, the lesson there is wanting more is probably going to get you more but you may not actually want more yeah no i'm yeah. no you're absolutely right it's like the foundation of scarcity right yes that the opposite of more is not less the opposite of more is enough Ooh. do you know any of those people i do i certainly do i know some of those people who have had what i deem success beyond all measure and mm-hmm. yet I can see that they don't live in the appreciation of that. They live in the lack of what they have now or the, or the perception yeah. that it was supposed to be something else. Or I'm grateful for examples like that in my life because it helps me remember that no matter what we get in life, each day we just have that day and we have what's mm-hmm. in that day. And if we aren't training ourselves to be grateful for what we do have, you can create a monster in yourself. There's a theater person who I know who has a very successful career and has originated a lot of roles on Broadway. And when trying to express like the congratulations for all of that success, what was given was, well, I don't know what I have to do to get a Tony Award nomination. Right. And when I heard that, I was like, oh. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then they got nominated for a Tony Award, and then <laughs> they won a Tony Award. And when I saw them win that Tony Award, I thought, well, I hope you're happy. Mm-hmm. But you probably aren't. Yep, probably aren't. Because that feeling doesn't get solved by more stuff. No, no, definitely not. Ever. You know, I'm a I'm a recovering alcoholic, so <clears throat> I've been sober for four and a half years, and I and that's that's that Congrats. same it's that same thing. You chase something that's that you know we talk in AA about the the God sized hole in your in yourself that 
you fill with anything. You know, it can be booze, food, fame is a huge one. I mean, I, I, fame and praise and accolades, like there should be a 12 step program just for that. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's for everybody's, it's in everybody's best interest, really. <laughs> um, otherwise, I'm a real Norma. I mean, imagine I'm such a Norma four and a half years sober. Imagine an, imagine an unsober version of my Norma Desmond. That's not pretty. That's not pretty. But watch out. I'll, I'll have a zoo full of monkeys oh, and, a, and probably a cage full of Joe Gillises, to be honest. <laughs> Just check the basement. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan, for doing this. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I've had the best time. And thank you for I love that you I love that you pick musicals for people. And it made me feel made me feel very seen that you asked me to do this one. (laughs) It made me feel very understood. I'm so grateful. As always, if you have suggestions for musicals that we cover here on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at A Musical Podcast for more great content. Like I said earlier, we have a tea Public store with original designs that capitalize on some of our favorite moments in episodes past and present. I'm pretty sure there's going to be one from this episode, so check that out. <laughs> And Ryan, how do we follow you and all the things that you're up to? Because you've got your hands in many pots in around town. Um, yeah, I mean, the best place is Instagram. I'm Ryan O'Connor, 81, uh, 81 the year I was born. And uh, woo, woo. And, um, and O'Connor, like Sinead, Sandra Day, Donald, all of, all of the, Carol, all the, all the O'Connors. O-R, you, O-C-O-N-N-O-R. You got some good company there. I do, I do. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, be nice to your floor lamps. (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.